Okay, good morning. Now, I wonder what you think of when you think of the typical good Christian or the good Christian life. Growing up in church, going to Christian summer camps, uh, seeing Christians from all sorts of backgrounds because London is a truly kind of international uh, kind of place. Um, but also going on these kind of, uh, I went to a private school and then there were certain summer camps. I went to like Chinese church summer camps, but also went to kind of my private school summer camps uh, where people, you know, kind of uh, affluent and wealthy. And, and, you know, I had this image of what a godly Christian man within the church should be. And I wonder whether you can identify with this. Now, I pictured an, a well-educated older man, someone who has a good job, a lovely wife, some you know, cute kids, well-dressed kids. And you can already probably think of some of the people in church who you think this is, this is probably them. He has a nice house and maybe one or two cars. He's well-respected in his community. Maybe he's on the board of governors for his school, his children's school. He leads a Bible study. Maybe he leads in church and maybe he preaches in church. And he has a range of kind of well-respected hobbies like tennis or golf, keeping him healthy and fit and well-respected. You see, it's pretty idyllic, that idea, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know whether you, you, got, you guys have the same image. That was certainly my image of, and, and still occasionally I do think of, you know, the godly Christian man like that. The question is, is this biblical? Certainly we have some images of blessings given to Isaac, uh, sorry, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and some of the figures of the Old Testament suggesting wealth and prosperity. And even the... Uh, I mean, often joked about, uh, but the noble wife at the end of uh, the Proverbs where her husband is sitting on the, the city council and she goes out to check out the field and does all the work while well the husband seems to kind of be relaxing. Um, but that kind of life, even though she's working hard, it seems as if she has wealth and prosperity, per prosperity and it's pretty perfect as a life. But the question is, what happens when life is not quite so perfect? Let's read today's passage and uh, have a look at what Peter has to say about this. So reading from verse 12 in 1 Peter chapter 4. Suffering as a Christian. Beloved. Do not be surprised as the, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of your, you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God 
And if it begins with us, what will the outcome for those who do not obey the glory of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the glory of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's uh, God's will entrust their soul to a faithful creator while doing good. Let me pray. Father, help us to entrust our souls to you because you have given us great promises and you died for us on the cross. Lord, help us to look to Jesus, your son who died on the cross and, you know, um, and see that as a, our pivotal moment, the moment when we are accepted into your family and we're given this promise of eternity. Lord, help us to listen to your words today. Humble our hearts. Help us to listen and uh, change as you are changing us. In Jesus' name, amen. So this section is entitled Suffering as a Christian. And so because of that, we shouldn't be surprised when I say that the Bible does not promise the image that I gave earlier does not promise us wealth and health and security. It doesn't mean that we won't get it. And it doesn't mean that if we have wealth, health and security, that, yeah, we aren't a, a Christian. As a single man who would love to have a family one day, it does not even promise a wife and kids, as some Christians have told me over the years and suggested that you know, you have that longing, therefore God has put that in you and therefore it will happen. I've come to you know, be at peace with that, but it's taken a little while. The path to this promises, this idea of trying to grasp those promises that aren't there, is called the prosperity gospel. And sadly, far too many churches, even Bible teaching churches can be guilty of suggesting that some churches outright teach it that if you become a Christian, you will get wealth, health and prosperity. You will get a nice car, a nice house, the wife and the kids and a peaceful life. But even Bible teaching churches which don't teach that may often suggest that. I wonder whether you've ever heard in difficult times. Oh, it will get better. And yes, it will get better. Maybe in eternity, though. And that's not a, a necessarily a nice thing to think about. Like many places in the New Testament, Peter warns his fellow Christians. He calls them his beloved. Not, uh, not to be surprised when trials comes. In fact, he refers to them as the fiery trials. And when something is referred to as the fiery trials, you know it's going to hurt. Even thinking about it, it makes you wince. The Old Testament isn't without these stories as well. And you can see these in the great characters' lives in Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph, Jacob, and Joseph, who went through terrible trials. And we talked about that last week, Sarah being the faithful wife, trusting her husband as he, he led her into all sorts of terrible situations, difficult situations. 
None of them lived lives without trials and without sorrows. And we see this most of all, of course, with Job, who endured great pain and suffering, loss of his wealth and his children, which was a trial by the devil that God allowed to test him. Not because he had done anything wrong, but to test him. And he came out stronger. So why, when suffering comes, are we surprised by it? By it? Because we do, don't we? We are surprised when these trials come, when we, are, yeah, when we suffer. We think that somehow our lives should go swimmingly. Do, do we really think that we have earned that peace, earned our nice families, earned the nice house, earned the nice retirement? Because if we think in earthly terms, we look around us, we think we work pretty hard, we're as good as these people around us, we deserve this. We deserve that salary. When you go for the next job, is there a salary that you won't take? Like, we deserve it. We, we tell ourselves we deserve it. But as Christians, we know that we are all sinful. Before God's eyes, before perfection, we are all sinful. We are all lazy. We are all selfish. I know that I am. And we have earned nothing. Because everything that we have given us, uh, been given, sorry, everything we have, we have been given. It took me a long re a while to realize that even my intellect, something that I used to be so proud of and still probably am far too proud of, and of my intelligence and my kind of ability to do things, that comes from God. That is a blessing from God and can be taken away, is given and taken away. But instead, we should see our reward in heaven. And that is for our service to God, our love of God, our obedience to God. Not that we deserve it, but because that is what God will give us. Hopefully calling us his good and faithful servant. That is what we should be longing for. So Peter warns us that we should not find this strange. And again, who is the epitome of this? The person who above all deserved the greatest joy and peace and all the rewards. He lived a perfect life. He lived, he loved greatly, he served God faithfully, and he did no wrong. If you haven't guessed it by now, I am, of course, talking about Jesus. And so if Jesus, that most deserving of all those, uh, those blessings, if he suffered then surely we should not be surprised that when we stand for Jesus, we will also suffer. Verse 13 says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of, of glory and of God rests upon you. I've been told a couple of times in my Christian life that in our circles, in the circles I move in, don't really suffer. And there is some truth to that. 
We're not going to get imprisoned for life and tortured, as you might expect from Christians living in North Korea or parts of China. We're generally not in danger of getting attacked and killed for being a Christian, um, although there have been instances in Malaysia. But that is almost a a daily fear in places like Nigeria or Afghanistan or being kidnapped for being a missionary like the missionaries in Haiti. But I do believe there is still suffering that we can experience. One Peter talks about unfair governments. There are times where the government is, can be anti-church and anti-Christian. But it also talks about the struggles of unfair masters. And some of you might have ex- experienced that. And also in uh, marriages. Difficult marriages and not just to those who are unbelievers. That is what it said in 1 Peter 3. Many of you know far better than me that marriage, even to believers, isn't necessarily a bed of roses and can cause suffering. <laughs> Carol is shaking her head. That's no, because your, your marriage is perfect, obviously, with perfect three little children. Well-dressed little children, cute children, okay, who are amazingly well-behaved all the time. They do their studies and they make their mum proud. I know of school children and of university students. Some of my students have told me about Christian ones who have told me how they are mocked by their teachers and professors for standing up for their faith. I know of people, some colleagues and ex-colleagues, and church friends who have been passed over from promotion and been slandered at work because they were living as openly Christian. It is a great blessing that we can be openly Christian, that we need not be afraid to say that we come to church. And in some cases, that can even be uh, something that gives us more respect within the community. But it can also lead to mockery and uh, prejudice, snide comments, which is a form of persecution. I have talked uh, before about my own experiences uh, under some persecution. Obviously, physically, I wasn't harmed, but I certainly felt as if I was going through the ringer. And at the time, I'm not somebody who jumps to kind of spiritual warfare or spiritual attack. But at the time, my head of department, who is uh, himself an outspoken atheist, he, he actually said that if I pray for him, he would get very angry. Um, I still pray for him another, and then the, nonetheless. Um, but he is a, a great guy, uh, really a, a nice guy. But he said he was part of the kind of email exchange, and he said that he felt very much like it was a witch hunt that was going on that they were being unreasonable, illogical, and out to get me just because I was a Christian and just because of my faith. I have spoken about this before, but a few months earlier, my pastor spoke about this very passage, 1 Peter 4. And I, uh, he opened up the uh, questions to the congregation. If you want to come and ask me uh, questions about this later, you can. But I asked him this question. As a Christian, 
Should I worry if I'm not being persecuted? It's a bit ironic, isn't it? When you know, God has these amazing foreshadowings, I ask this question. Foolishly, I ask this question. As a Christian, should I worry if I am being pers- if I'm not being persecuted? And here in his wisdom, he replied that if I was standing as a Christian, if I was sharing my faith, persecution would come and find me. I need not search for it. Please don't search for persecution or suffering. That is not the purpose of this passage. And sure enough, it came. And so let me warn you that as Christians, if you are living for God, if you are growing as Christian, if you are growing as Christian, then you shouldn't. It should be that you shouldn't be able to help yourself, but speak out about him. If you're growing on your love for somebody, then you're going to share that. You're going to want to share that. Hopefully those of you who who are married know that when you first fell in love with that person. You want to kind of share it. And when you have, you know, when you're, you're they, they, they propose or you propose, you want to share it with the world. As you grow as Christians, as you grow in love with Jesus and in, grow in your faith in God, then you cannot help but, but share your faith. You should not then be surprised if persecution finds you. I'm going to read from John 15, verse 18. These are the words of Jesus. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Where are you standing as a Christian? Maybe not going out to drink excessively with your colleagues. Maybe not joining the golf game on a Sunday morning. Maybe devoting and saying, sorry, Tuesday night is my Bible study night. I can't do extra work then. Where are you standing as a Christian where this will cross what your colleagues, your boss might find unacceptable? So as Christ suffered and as Christ suffered, rejoice and be glad. Not in some masochistic way. We're not trying to encourage you to be masochistic, to go out and say, and then enjoy your suffering. That's not what it's saying. But to suffer for Christ means that you are doing something right. It's not something strange. You should not be surprised by it. If people mock you and persecute you, you know you've done something right, and that should make you glad. Imagining that, you, you know, knowing your life, your, your home is in heaven. Again, that should make you glad that you are on the right track to heaven. This is not easy teaching. 
We're all, we all long for that peaceful, idyllic life, having the nice, peaceful life, the good home, the good family, the good, you know, um, the good retirement. Knowing that we won't settle peacefully into retirement with that house in the country, with the nice garden and the library in our spare room. This is what I'm imagining. Maybe that's just my dream. It certainly doesn't seem a great way to sell the Christian lifestyle. You will struggle. You will continue to struggle. There will be times of persecution and suffering. Come and be a Christian. Be hated by your colleagues. Lose out on promotions, get paid pennies and struggle for the rest of your life. Does that seem like a good way to sell the Christian life? No, it doesn't. But it's the reality. Remember, this is a short time we have on earth. Maybe 80 years if we're lucky. And then we get that idyllic life. We do get that idyllic life, that perfectly peaceful life. But we get that in heaven. That's what we're promised. Verse 15 says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. This probably goes without saying. It's probably obvious. But Peter is not talking about any suffering here. We're not talking about uh, just general suffering. Plenty of non-Christian quotes will quote twee sayings about or very cynical sayings about life is pain. Well, suffering is the human condition. I'm sure you've heard that. And in some ways, they are right. Once Adam and Eve introduced sin into the world, the pain and suffering followed. And even the innocent, not that there are any innocent, but those who are not guilty of the consequences of that suffering, uh, suffer. Not to mention the suffering that we inflict on ourselves for stupidity or selfishness or just plain you know, uh, evil. No, Peter says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a, a meddler. So if you are a murderer, hopefully none of you listen to this, but who knows, a thief, an evildoer, and even a meddler, you deserve to suffer. A murderer deserves to be jailed. A thief will hopefully be caught and punished. This isn't the suffering as a Christian and deserves no reward or praise. Now, isn't it interesting that Peter also includes meddler in that? This is another example that shows me that to God, all sins are equally abhorrent and he cannot abide them in his presence. But that's something to unpack and talk about more at another time. There are many lists where we see these, you know, these kind of uh, very obvious big sins. Murder, theft, adultery, lying. And then we get this slightly more in, you know, kind of seemingly more inner, innocent uh, sins, gossip slander etc here meddler we have so yeah meddler which is interesting i think the latest name for meddler because it's always something that is fairly 
kind of joked about, but fairly common in society, the, third, the, the latest name for meddler is Karen, isn't it? Yeah, that's what we call people a Karen. To be honest with you, I'm not a great fan of that because firstly, it implies that it's a certain type of middle-aged woman, but also it, it, you know, it implies that uh, it can't be a man. And we know that men can be just as bad in meddling. I think the, a better term, which is slightly old, you know, older, is busybody. Someone who sticks their noses in other bit of people's business. Now, that's not to say that as Christians, we shouldn't stand for justice and righteousness. And that we shouldn't speak up for what is morally right in our community. But a meddler goes further than that, don't they? They actually look to actively involve themselves in other people's affairs when they are not asked to. And nobody likes that. So they deserve the consequences of what they do. Maybe they're shunned. Maybe they're mocked. Maybe they're laughed at. We are not talking about that. Peter is not talking about suffering and persecution for things that we deserve. This is talking about the result of godly Christian standing and sharing our faith. And this is followed by another warning in verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and it begins with us. We will be judged for what we do. We will be judged for being Christian and the message we have. And I know that as, a, as the person preaching and a teacher, I will be judged more harshly because I have been given that responsibility and that role. It says, and if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the godly, uh, sorry, ungodly and the sinner? If the righteous is scarcely saved, you see there is no place in the Christian life for pride. We are scarcely saved. As a Christian, I know that I will be, uh, face judgment and be found guilty. We know that as sinful, uh, we know that as uh, we are far from being without sin. We know that as sinful as we are, the only reason that we are saved, this is the only reason we are saved, is through the sacrifice of Jesus' death on the cross in our place. And that we are scarcely saved. And if we are scarcely saved, we are being made righteous through the blood of Jesus. If that is true, then what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? They will have to bow the knee when Jesus comes again, when God reveals himself in the time uh, of judgment and they will realize they will not have a word to say against that when their sins are revealed. And how terrible will that day be? Not just for us, but so much more for them. You see, we will be judged by how we live our lives. We will, but to those who persecute us, they will be judged as well. Their words and their actions will condemn them. As Christians, we should understand that they are condemning themselves. 
And because of that, to those who are mocking us, who are sidelining us, who are dismissing us as Christians, who are persecuting us as Christians, we should, instead of reacting angrily or aggressively, we should pity them and pray for them. And that is a hard thing to say, isn't it? Think of those who have mocked you, who hate you for being a Christian. We should be pitying them and we should be praying for them. Not just because life, it would make our life easier. In fact, I, I once kind of realized that those who are making my life difficult, those who are mocking me, etc., I should pray for them. Imagine what is the worst thing that could happen to somebody who is then converted. How guilty must they feel? And I kind of took a small pleasure in that. Their, their, their feeling of you know, guilt after they had been persecuted, you know, persecuting, mocked. What a terrible experience it must have happened to uh, Saul. But when he became Paul, realizing that he had persecuted and killed Christians, how much guilt that must have given him that he lived with for the rest of his life. We shouldn't take pleasure in that, or rather we should take pleasure in the idea of them being converted, but we should pity them and pray for them. The famous words of the English evangelical preacher and martyr John Bradford say, he said, there but for the grace of God go I. God chose us. And without God reaching out to us, we would be there. We would be um, an atheist. We would be aggressive. We would be mocking the Christians as well. We have been forgiven much. And realizing this, it should help us forgive others and love those who are persecuting us. And if we needed no more reason, there is one final reason, because that's what Jesus did, isn't it? On the cross, which was one of the most excruciating deaths in the whole of history, one of the most painful deaths in the whole of history, he still prayed, Father, forgive them, they know not what they are doing. And so we should follow his example, because that is who we are trying to be more like. So if we should stand, so we should stand firm for our faith. And if we are, we should not be surprised if persecution finds us. And if it does, and we are being persecuted for being Christians, we should try and be glad we, that we can suffer for Christ. Because we know we are on the right track. We are doing the right thing. Let me pray. Father, we pray that you protect us from persecution. That you help us to grow without these difficult times. But Lord, we know that difficult times will come. We pray that you give us peace and joy even in those difficult times. But Lord, we also pray that you help us to realize that those difficult times will mold us, will make us into people more like you. 
and this is something that you have promised us that these difficult times will come and help us to embrace those and be glad because we are being witnesses for you lord help us not be surprised by these things to look to your heaven as our home the church as our family and to rest on them. Lord, we thank you for your great work of forgiveness, the death of your son, Jesus, that enables us to be part of your family and to have that promised place of eternity and home in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.